0: And then um, just before, um, before we, we go to God's word, I, again, I just want to introduce uh, Mike uh, Stambaugh. Some of you had asked, so, so where's Mike? Mike's retired from, from First Baptist Church of Cadillac. He was in ministry there for, for a number of years. And uh, he's going to be preaching this week and next week. And, um, and then we have some others that will come in, in July. Mike will be back for one of those Sundays in, in July. Uh, but July 3rd, uh, Jonathan Mass is going to be here. And uh, so we just wanted you to be aware, be aware of that. Uh, July 17th is uh, Ken, Ken Rudolph from, from Lake Lakeland Camp is going to be here. And so just some different ones. We'll try to keep you abreast of, of that as well. But at this time, I'm going to invite Mike to come, and uh, he's going to open God's Word and, and our, our two-week study in, um, in uh, Psalm 46. So actually a three-week study. This is the second week of that study. So welcome, Mike. Good morning. It is good to be back here. I noticed uh, Sheldon got the same memo that I did, which was uh, that we needed a haircut. So we both got haircuts. Now Sheldon has more hair to cut than I do, but uh, we got that memo and we were comparing our haircuts and we were, I guess maybe Sheldon, according to Sheldon, I was more pleased with my barber than he was with his. I don't know. Don't know about that. You have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. And last week we talked about the background of this psalm, the possibility that it came out of a situation from 2 Kings 18 and 19 where King Hezekiah, the king of the southern kingdom Judah, was being threatened by this powerful Assyrian king, Sennacherib. And uh, He had sent a delegation to threaten them. And then he wrote a letter to Hezekiah to threaten him. Hezekiah took that letter, went to the temple, spread it out before the Lord. And by the time he was done praying, Isaiah the prophet had already sent a message back to Hezekiah saying that God had heard his prayer and answered and that the Assyrians would not be a threat to them. And I believe that out of this possibly... Either Hezekiah or Isaiah might have penned this psalm and it's found its way by the sons of Korah into the psalm hymn book. So I'd like to invite you to stand with me as we read this psalm again. I always love the reading of God's word. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. And so there's some value in this. Psalm 46, Let you follow along as I read to you the God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is truth. We thank you that it is relevant. We thank you that it is holy. We thank you that it is right and good and pure. We thank you that it came from the very breath of the Holy Spirit through holy men of God. We thank you that it is without error, that it is not able to lead us in any way astray. And we thank you that it is forever, settled in the heavens. So, Lord, may we align our hearts this morning and our minds to your word so that it will be a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. And we give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This psalm is about what you and I can count on from God when we go through times of trouble in our life. I asked you last week if any of you went through trouble, and I think there were five of you that raised your hand. The rest of you need to get out more. (laughs) We've been in tight places before. It's what the trouble means. And as a matter of fact, the word trouble means any kind of tight place, any kind of distress not caused by disobedience or sin in our life. And We noted last week there are also three sections to this psalm, each ending with that little word, Selah which we believe is some kind of a musical rest, a musical notation to rest, to pause, to contemplate what had been sung. And so this psalm just naturally divides itself into three sections. What we need to know about God when trouble comes into our life. Last week we saw that God is our hope, verses 1 through 3. He, or excuse me, God is our harbor, verses 1 through 3. And we looked at three declarative statements, most of them right out of verse 1, if you remember, that God is our refuge, that God is our strength, and that God is our very present help. In other words, He's exceedingly efficient, He's always there, and He's the only remedy. And because of all of that, we say in verse 2, we will not fear. Though any kind of catastrophic thing may happen because He is our harbor. Today I want us to look at the second section of this, verses 4 through 7, and that is that God is our help. He's our harbor, verses 1 through 3, He is now our help. Verses 4 through 7, let's read verse 4 through 7 again. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So the psalmist here again gives us specific declarations about our God that we must understand and embrace in times of trouble. And the question really is this. How do we know when trouble hits that God is our help? Well, there's four reasons that the psalmist gives us in these verses. First of all, we know that God is our help because of His presence in us. God's presence in us. Verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Now, in a very specific sense, the city of God refers to Jerusalem. It was the capital city of the nation of Israel, and especially the southern kingdom, Judah. And it was a very important city because it was where God's presence was specifically. That's why it's called the city of God. Now, when we say his presence specifically, we're not limiting his presence. We understand that God is omnipresent. We understand that he is in every place, in every point of time. There is no place where God is not. That's hard for us to be able to fathom because we're so limited. We can only be at one place at a time. God doesn't have those kind of limitations. So we're not limiting God. He simply wanted his people to know that there was a specific place that he had chosen to dwell. And not just the city of Jerusalem, But notice more importantly, the temple within the city. He calls it here the holy habitation of the Most High. That word habitation means a residence. There was a place within the city of Jerusalem where God specifically was known to dwell, and it was called the most holy place. Whether it was the tabernacle in Exodus during the wilderness wanderings, or the temple that Solomon had built, That in the center of that, there were two rooms. One of those rooms was called the Holy Place, and in that room, there was the table of showbread, and there was the golden lampstand, and uh, there was the altar of incense, and it was into that room that the priests who were on duty could come in twice a day, and they would offer prayers on behalf of the people as the people waited outside. But then there was a veil, there was a curtain, a heavy, thick curtain that divided that room from a second room. And that second room was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And that was the place that had the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was the place that had the mercy seat on top. It was a little box that had a a, a mercy seat, a covering with two golden cherubim with their wings pointed toward each other and the cherubim in scripture are angelic beings that seem to defend and protect the holiness and the glory of God and that's what that symbolized and when it was in the tabernacle there was no ceiling and so the pillar of fire at night or the cloud by day would hover over that Ark of the Covenant and all of the children of Israel could look to the center in where the tabernacle was and they could be reminded that the presence of God was with them. That was his dwelling place. Now you say, well, how does that help us? We don't live in Jerusalem. And if we did live in Jerusalem, it wouldn't matter anyway. There's not a temple there, right? Well, let me give you some good news. God has changed his dwelling place. God has a new dwelling place. He has changed his address. And I don't mean just in heaven. Keep your finger in Psalm chapter 46. And go with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I want you to see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I love to hear pages turning. You don't hear as many pages turning anymore because people bring their phones. And I can't hear those things. But I love hearing pages turning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Notice what he says in verse 19. Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, says, Do you not know? In other words, this is something they should have known. He says, Don't you know that your body is a temple? Naos, N-A-O-S is the Greek word, significant. A naos, a temple of the Holy Spirit, where? Within you. Wow, there's a thought. The Holy Spirit is within you, your body. Whom you have from God, you're not your own. Verse 20, you're bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. Now, I love the fact that words are so important here, and he uses the Greek word naos, naos to describe this temple. There were two words for temple one was Hirion, and the other was naos. Hirion referred to the whole temple complex. But when he used the words naos, he is referring specifically to that most holy place where the presence of God would dwell. Do you know what? This is an amazing thing. Think about this. That when, when they had the tabernacle, that the pillar of fire by night hovered over that most holy place and the cloud by day hovered over that most holy place when they were stationary. If they were moving, then it would go out in front. God would go out in front. That pillar of f- fire and that cloud by day has now moved to inside you and I if you know Christ. That is an amazing thought, is it not? That God dwells within us. We are now, get this church, we are now the holy habitation of God. That was the promise that Jesus made the night before he was crucified to his disciples in John 14, verses 16 and 17. And you can see it up here. It says this, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, capital H, To be with you forever, even the Spirit, capital S of truth. So he's talking about the Holy Spirit who is the helper. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him. Now get this. For He dwells with you and will be what? What's it say? In you. In you. What does that mean? That means that there is no place... There is no situation, there is no circumstance, there is no time that you're ever in or ever will be in that God is not there. He's always there. And it isn't just that His presence is with us. It's that He is in us. See, He will always be our help because He's always there. That's one of his names. I don't know if you know that or not. In the book of Ezekiel, chapters 40 through 48, Ezekiel has a vision of the coming temple that will be established in the millennial reign of Christ. And at the very end, in Ezekiel 48, the very last verse, verse 35, it says this. The circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits and the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. Or literally in the Hebrew, it is Yahweh Shammah. Yahweh meaning Lord and Shema meaning there. So you have Yahweh, Shema, the Lord is there. God is our help because of his presence in us and because of his presence in us he is always there. That is comforting. Very comforting. I don't know if you realize it this week or not you didn't go anywhere without taking God with you. Did you know that if you're a true believer? You didn't go anywhere without taking him with you. As a matter of fact, uh, if you want to, just for a second, this just came to me, and I have to be careful with these thoughts that just come to me. But go over to Psalm 139 for just a second. Keep your finger in Psalm 46, we'll be back. Listen to what David said in Psalm 139, beginning in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Now, I don't think David is saying that because he's trying to get away from God. He's just saying, look, where where, where do I go where God isn't? Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Now, get this, verse 8, watch this now. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield the grave, you are there. There. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, how about that? There, there, there. Yahweh Shema. The God who is always what? There. He's always there. So God is our help because of His presence in us. Secondly, God is also our help In times of trouble, because of his protection over us. God's protection over us. His presence in us, his protection over us. Look at verse 5. God is in the midst of her. Speaking of Jerusalem, female pronouns here used to describe Jerusalem. God is in the midst of her. She, Jerusalem, shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Now, what's interesting is this. Back in verse 1, you remember, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. And here again in verse 5, you have the word help in the English. But what's interesting is the Hebrew word in verse 1 is different from the Hebrew word here in verse 5. Back in verse 1, the word help there meant aid or remedy. God will come to our aid. He's our remedy. We talked about that last week. Here, the word help is a much stronger word. And it means that he is uh, our protector. He surrounds us with protection. As a matter of fact, uh, let me give you a little note here that I thought was interesting. where it says in verse 5, God will help her when the morning dawns? This is one of the reasons why I believe that the background to this ver- to this psalm is that incident in 2 Kings 18 and 19, because it was very interesting. Do you remember that when the Assyrians had surrounded the city of Jerusalem, that God? sent out an angel, one angel. That's how powerful an angel. He sent out one angel and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. And verse 35 of 2 Kings 18 says this, that when the, a people, when the people arose early in the morning, behold, all those dead bodies. And notice what it says here. God will help her when the morning dawned. That, that's early in the morning, all right? He protected her. He surrounded her with protection. Which means that God, remember, because He's changed His habitation, He's changed His address, He now lives in us. God is not only in us, but He's also around us. I mean, let's just put it this way He's got us covered, doesn't He? He's in us, He's around us, He's not distant, He's not just out there somewhere hanging around, but nobody knows where He is. As a matter of fact, the psalmist here becomes more specific in verse five. God is in the midst. Circle that word "midst." It's a beautiful word. It means the center, the the the, the nearest part. Where is God when trouble and calamity comes? It's out there somewhere? Around somewhere? No. You know what this is? He is in the center. He is as near to you as he can possibly get no matter what you're going through, because he's always there. He was in the midst of protecting Jerusalem when this ruthless Assyrian ruler, Sennacherib, wanted to destroy it. He's in the midst of your crisis. He's in the midst of your pain or your hurt or your sorrow or your suffering. He's protecting you. And by the way, not just individually, but as a body of believers together as his church as a whole body I love in Revelation chapter 1 John has a vision of Jesus and uh, the very way that this vision is introduced is it's introduced that uh, he saw seven golden lampstands and those seven golden lampstands in verse 20 are identified as the seven churches of Asia Minor that are written about in chapter 2 or 3 of Revelation. And it says, And there was one like the Son of Man standing in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Jesus was always in the middle of his church. I want you to know something. God is in the middle of your church. I know that you're going through some confusing times. I don't know all the details. I don't need to know all the details. I know that you're just going through some confusing times, some wondering times. You wonder what's going to happen next, who's going to be the next pastor, what direction the church is going to go. Can I put your mind at ease? Don't worry. It's not your church. It's God's. He will take care of it. He will protect you. You trust Him. You follow Him. He will guide your path. I believe that with all my heart. Because guess what, folks? He's in the midst. He's in the midst right here today. We are worshiping him because he is in us. He's around us. He's protecting us all the time. We have a great Old Testament illustration of this in the book of Daniel. Remember, Daniel had three friends, Jewish friends They're known more by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, in chapter 3, they're still serving, they're still in Babylon, and they're still under this ruthless, arrogant king called Nebuchadnezzar. But Nebuchadnezzar liked these guys. For some reason, he he really liked Daniel because Daniel interpreted a dream for him back in chapter 1. And so he had set them in high places. Well, Nebuchadnezzar gets the idea one night that he needs to be worshipped more. People need to have more attention on him. So he, he gets all his counsel together, says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to have them build a statue of me. Now that's a little bit arrogant. I'm going to have them build a statue of me out of solid gold. It was 90 foot, feet tall. And he says, what we're going to do is we're going to make this little, send this memo out all through Babylon that whenever the people hear the musical instruments start to play. They got to drop whatever they're doing, and they got to drop to their knees, all towards the center, and bow down to my image. I think it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you got everybody bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar's image, but these three Jews kept standing. Today, in the national anthem, we have everybody standing, and certain people bowing down. And you know, there's still confusion, isn't there? So the music sounds, and they look around, and here's these three Jews standing. So the word comes back to Nebuchadnezzar, and he is ticked. That's kind of the Hebrew word that's used right there. I mean, he's just ticked. So he calls him in, and he says, uh, and he likes these guys. So he says, Listen, I says, uh, he's trying to make excuses for him. He says, You probably didn't get the memo. Okay, but the memo was very simple. When you hear the sound of that music, he said, you need to bow down to my image. He said, I'm going to give you another chance to do this, all right? So when you guys hear the sound of the music, I just want you to be ready. Make sure that you bow down to this music. And so the music plays, and they stand. And then they say this. They say, we're not going to bow down to your image, O king. Well, that sent him over the top, and he had told them, he said, look, he said, anybody that doesn't bow down is going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. It was an open pit furnace, and they were going to be burned alive. He was so mad at shattering Meshach and Abednego, he commanded the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than it normally was. He bound them with ropes and he had the soldiers take them up and throw them in the the furnace and as soon as they got close to the furnace, the soldiers were immediately struck dead and here goes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and they fall into the furnace. Now look what happens in Daniel chapter 3, verse 23 through 25. Look at this now. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste and he declared to the counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst. There's that word again. In the midst of the fire and they're not hurt and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the God. See, it was either an angel that God had sent or was a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ himself who was with them. But notice that God was with them in the midst of the fire. And by the way, something that's very important here to notice, God did not stop them. Now, please get this. God did not stop them from going into the fire. God could have stopped them from going into the fire. God could have killed the soldiers before they got to the fire. God could have struck Nebuchadnezzar dead. All those things could have happened, but God didn't. He didn't stop them from having to go through the fire, but he protected them while they were in the fire. God is in the midst of whatever you go through. He's not only with you, But he's in you. And there's two very very important thoughts about God's protection I want to give to you from this. Number one is this. and I talked a little bit about this last week, but let me reiterate it again. Sometimes God's provision and protection is immediate. Sometimes he will protect and deliver us right now from whatever present trouble we are in. But the second truth is this. Is that God's protection is always ultimate. And what I mean by that is he will ultimately always deliver. Always protect. Daniel's that was the friend of Daniel's 3 posi- uh, that was the position of Daniel's 3 friends as a matter of fact. You know when they stood before Nebuchadnezzar and said we're not going to bow down. They didn't know if God was going to immediately protect them or not, but they knew he ultimately would protect them. Look at what they said to King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3 again, backing up a few verses, verses 17 and 18, it's right up here. Because Nebuchadnezzar says that I'm going to throw you into the furnace, and then he makes this statement, and what God is there that can deliver you out of my hands, and here's their response, I love this faith they said this, if this be so Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. Did you see that? He is able to deliver. You know what they didn't say? They didn't say he will immediately deliver us. They just said he's able to. We know he's able to. He is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will. Now get this now. He will deliver us out of your hand ultimately. See, he's, they said, we don't know whether it's going to be immediate deliverance, but we know whether we live or whether we die, it's going to be an ultimate deliverance. But if not, verse 18, but if not, in other words, if not an immediate deliverance, in other words, if we're going to die, if you're going to put us in that furnace and we're going to perish there, be it known to you, O Cain, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I love that about them very willing to accept whatever God puts them through, knowing with a confidence He is able to deliver them, but not knowing whether He is going to deliver them. That's all right with them because God is sovereign and God can do what He wants to do. And let me just give you a suggestion, folks. Don't tell God how He needs to function. Don't tell Him what He has to do in your trouble. He's sovereign. He knows what to do. I mean, it's not like you get in trouble and God's sitting up there thinking, how did that happen? We don't tell God how to function. We don't treat God like a genie that if you rub him the right way, you get what you want. There were times in the Bible when God did deliver and he delivered immediately and there were times in the Bible when God didn't but you know what one thing is true in each of those cases and it's true in your case as well there is never a time in the Bible when God did not be with the people he was protecting there's never a time when you're out of his protective care he's our help in time of trouble because of his protection over us he's a help in time of trouble because of his presence in us thirdly He is a help in times of trouble because of his power for us. God's power for us. Look at verse 6 and 7. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. Please underline that first part in verse 7 in your Bibles. The Lord of hosts is with us. You know, the names of God are very important for us to understand. There, there's there's confidence in knowing his name. There's comforts in knowing his name. And when I say his names, he's got many names, not just God, all right. But there's so much confidence in knowing and calling upon the names of the Lord. Matter of fact, Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter eighteen verse ten. He said, "The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe." One of God's names is what we see right here in this phrase in verse 7, the Lord of hosts. That word "host," sabah, T-S-A-B-A, is the Hebrew word. sabah. it means a mass of people or things. For instance, it's used in Deuteronomy 4.19 to, to, to speak of the sun and the moon and all the stars. It's called in scripture many times the starry host. It really is a military word. That has both an earthly and a heavenly connotation. The earthly connotation, when host is used, usually refers to the armies of Israel. The psalmist said in Psalms 44 9, speaking to God because he felt God's, ab- he felt God's absence from them, he says, You have regarded us and disgraced us, or excuse me, you have rejected us and disgraced us, and have not gone out with our armies. Sabah, same word. From a heavenly perspective, that word refers to all the multitudes of angels that are at God's command. Psalmist David said in Psalm 103, verse 20 and 21, Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of, the, uh, the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all His hosts. There it is again, Sabah. His ministers who do His will. I don't know if you realize this or not, but God has hosts of powerful beings Called angels that he uses to protect us every day. We have another great example of that in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter six. You got the prophet Elisha, and at that time the king of Syria was a man named Ben Hadad, and he was warring against the king of Israel, who we think at that time was Jehoram. And so Ben Hadad was planning these little raids on Israel, just these little raids. He'd try to, he'd come over here and he'd want to raid this place. Then he'd come over here and try to raid this place and all this. So he'd meet with his council and say, well, you know, tomorrow we're going to go raid here. And then the next day we're going to go raid here. Well, the problem is that the Holy Spirit would come to Elijah and say, hey, Elisha, uh, they're going to be over here tomorrow. Tell the king. So Elisha would go tell the king. He'd say, yeah, don't go there. Or put your armies over here. And so every time that Ben-Hadad set his army somewhere, they, the Israelites weren't there. So he calls a meeting of his top counselors, and he says, what is going on here? Which one of you is against me? Who's the spy? And finally, the counselors, they they knew who Elisha was, the prophet. They said, it's none of us. It's Elisha, the prophet. He knows what you think when you're in your bedroom by yourself, and he tells the king of Israel. So here's what Ben-Hadad does. He sends his whole army. Instead of going to get the Israelites, he sends his whole army to the city of Dothan to get Elisha. So here's Elisha. He wakes up one morning, him and his his servant, and his servant went outside maybe to get some water or whatever. He walks outside and he looks around and the whole city of Dothan is absolutely surrounded by all of Ben-Hadad's army from Syria. He comes in, and here's Elisha just sitting at the table, probably having a nice cup of coffee, just enjoying the morning, reading the paper, and he gets this bad news from his servant, says, they've surrounded the city. What are we going to do? I love Elisha's response. Look at this, 2 Kings 6, 16 and 17. He said, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, I bet you at that point, this servant just had to pause and say, did I miss something? He might have gone over to the window again to look out and say, okay, where where, where are our guys? Because I don't see them. I I only see the enemy. So then, verse 17, Elisha prays, and he said, "Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountains were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. God had sent a whole angelic host. He couldn't see them. But Elisha knew they were there, and God had sent them. They were surrounded all around. You know, see, that, that's what it means in God's name, the Lord of hosts, that at his command, he has just thousands upon thousands, countless innumerable number of angels that he can send to help his people. I will guarantee you, for most all of you sitting in this room, that at some time, without you ever knowing it, God has sent angels to help you with something. You just didn't see them. See, that title, Lord of Hosts, folks, means that, that, that God is the sovereign ruler king over all the armies of the angels. The Lord of Hosts who reigns above all and over all is ready and able to intervene, not just for Israel, but also on our behalf. He is able to give us help in times of trouble because of his great power. You know, he doesn't need to use angels. I mean, God could get us out of trouble by himself. He's powerful enough to do that. But there are many times when he uses angels as, as an extension of his power. Now, I know some of you are sitting there thinking, well, look, if God is so powerful, why doesn't he just protect us from trouble in the first place? I mean, if he's so powerful, why didn't he just not allow us, allow the trouble to surround us? Uh, Allow the trouble in his life. Why why does he do that? I think one of the things that we really misunderstand in life because we are luxury people is we don't understand the benefits of trouble. We don't understand the benefits of trials. We don't understand the benefits of suffering. You know, what? one of the benefits of trouble is, is it will either strengthen our faith or it will reveal how weak our faith is or it will reveal that we have no faith. And it's good to know. I remember telling you last week about my daughter and her husband that we lost our seven-year-old, they lost their seven-year-old son a couple years ago. Matter of fact, uh, tomorrow will be the two-year day of his death from brain cancer. And I remember when they first got the diagnosis and my daughter Katie called me and she said she's crying and she says, Dad, and you know what she was crying about? It was very interesting. She says, Dad, what if I lose my faith? What if Josh loses his faith? And I said to her, I said, honey, you can't lose what you don't have. I said, this will not cause you to lose faith unless you don't have faith. I said, this will reveal to you where your faith is at and it will cause your faith to become stronger. And that's exactly what God has done through this whole thing over the last two years. That's what trouble does for us. That's what trouble does for us. It's one thing to say we believe that God is all-powerful. It's another thing to live that when we encounter situations that are beyond our ability to handle. And I want to tell you something. Do you know how you build faith? You don't build faith by being in situations that you can handle. You build faith by being in situations that are beyond your ability to handle, so you go to the one who can handle them. That's how you build faith. So how do we know that God is our help in time of trouble? We know it because of his power for us. Now, honest to goodness, that's where the sermon was supposed to end. And uh, the problem is that I kept going over Psalm 46 this week. I added one more point. So we know that God is our help in time of trouble because of his presence in us, because of his protection over us, because of power for us, and now finally this, because of his promise to us. Look at the very end of verse 7. The God of Jacob is our fortress. You know, I almost went right over the top of that. I'm sitting there thinking about that this week, and I begin to ask myself this question. Why did he he say here, the God of Jacob... I don't know if you noticed that or not, but it caught my attention. Why did he say the God of Jacob? Why did he say the God of Israel is our fortress? Because you remember in Genesis 32, 28, that Jacob was wrestling with God, with the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord had to put his hip out of socket, and, and he wanted to leave, and Jacob wouldn't let him go. He said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And so the Lord says, all right, I'll bless you. I'm going to change your name from Jacob to Israel. Remember that? So why would he not say here that the God of Israel is our fortress? Why would he say the God of Jacob? And the only thing I can think of is this. I believe that God wanted his people back then, the Jews, as well as us, but God wanted his people to know that the God who covenanted and gave his promise with Jacob When Jacob had nothing, when Jacob deserved nothing, when Jacob was only a deceiver and a liar and a schemer. And by the way, that's what the word Jacob means. The name Jacob means supplanter. One who takes the place of another by scheming. Remember, he did that. He schemed his brother Esau out of his birthright by tricking his father, making him think that he was Esau. And when Esau comes, and, and Jacob says, "I'm sorry," or excuse me, Jacob, Isaac says, "I'm sorry. I already gave. I thought you. I thought your brother was you. I already gave your birth right away." And Esau says this in Genesis twenty-seven thirty-six. He says, "Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me. He's a cheat." See, I think God left Jacob in there because he wanted his people to know, and he wants us to know that he was as faithful to his promises to Jacob, even with Jacob's track record, as he was to Abraham and to Isaac. Now, you know what that means for us? That means for us, beloved, this that even in times of our failure, how many in, you, how many in here have ever failed? Okay, for those of you that didn't raise your hand, you just did. <laughs> Even in our times of failure, when we disappoint God, when we don't live as we should, when we don't walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called, Ephesians 4.1, God is still our fortress. The one who will help us. Why? Because of us? No, because of Him because he is faithful Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.13 if we are faithless he remains what? faithful why? because he can't deny himself it's who he is and he's given us promises that are just like the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and those promises are not made they're not based upon our behavior they're based upon his character They're based upon him. Hebrews 13, 5 is one of those. I will never leave you nor forsake you. How about Philippians 1, 6, where he says, uh, being confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perform it. Who began the good work in you? God did. He's the one that will bring it to completion. Or in Jude verse 24, another one of those promises where he says, Now to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us faultless. Who keeps us from stumbling? Who keeps our salvation? We don't do it. Listen, I'll tell you right now, if salvation is dependent upon me to keep, I will certainly lose it. We'll lose it. The bottom line is now unto Him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us faultless before the only wise God. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. And my friend, because of that, we can say, middle of verse 5, God will help us. Amen? He'll help us. He's our harbor. He's our refuge, our strength, our very present help. He is our help through his presence in us, his protection over us, his power for us, his promises to us. And next week we'll finish with God is our hope. You see some challenging questions that I left for you there on your outline. I just want you to meditate on them this week That kind of relate to what we've been talking about today. Well, the Lord is good, isn't he? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises. Thank you for the truth. Oh, my goodness, Father, we are so grateful you're in us. It's just mind-boggling how you could live in this body through the person of the Holy Spirit. We're so grateful, Lord, for your protection over us. You watch out for us in ways that we aren't even aware of. You guard us from things that could have happened to us, but they didn't because you were there surrounding us as a shield. We thank you for your power for us that enables us to live to your glory. We thank you for the promises, Lord, that are not based upon our flimsy behavior but are rooted and grounded upon your flawless character. And we give you praise because these are the truths of your word written in our hearts by your spirit. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.